You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. I think GDPR is that sort of privacy panacea that is beginning to put the world on notice as it relates to, hey, people are starting to really care about their data and what companies are doing with it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben talks about an appeals court decision that could have major ramifications for cybersecurity firms. I've got the story of a judge who is none too happy with ChatGPT in his courtroom. And later in the show, my conversation with Larry Whiteside Jr., CISO of RegScale, discussing GDPR on the occasion of its fifth anniversary. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. All right, Ben, we've got some good stories to share this week. You want to start things off for us here? Sure. So my story comes from the Cybersecurity 202 over at the Washington Post. Uh, The article by Tim Starks is entitled, This Zombie Case Could Have Big uh, Ramifications for Cybersecurity Firms. Hmm. The reason it's a zombie case is that it's been going on forever. Uh, This lawsuit was initiated (laughs) in 2017. Wow. And much to my dissatisfaction, there are so many procedural issues here that are so incredibly dry and boring. Mm. But those procedural matters may may end up delaying uh, a decision on the merits even longer, which is too bad because I think the cybersecurity issues present here uh, are extremely significant. Okay. So the case uh, is Enigma v. Malwarebytes. They are both cybersecurity uh, firms. Yeah. Uh, And Enigma was, uh, in 2017, through this lawsuit, accusing Malwarebytes of labeling Enigma software malicious, quote, threats, and, quote, potentially unwanted programs. Hmm. Uh, So the cause of action here uh, that Enigma is alleging is that this violates a federal statute against false advertising. Uh, In order for that statute to be violated, one of the elements of that statute is the statement in question has to be of a factual nature. But let me pause you here sure. for just one second just to clarify, because Enigma is a software provider. It's worth mentioning that Malwarebytes is—they provide software that protects your computer from malware. So if they're, in a, if they're labeling Enigma's software as bad, that could stop it from running theoretically on someone's system who had Malwarebytes installed. 
Right. right. Yeah. Uh, okay. And that certainly has major financial implications for Enigma, which is why they're suing here. Right, right. Um, and it seems, <laughs> not to get into too, too into the weeds here, it seems like that these two firms have been going at it for a period of years. There was some uh, third-party firm that was involved in this litigation. Uh, like I said, the issues in this uh, case are unfortunately rather endless uh, <laughs> and kind of distract us from focusing on, on what I want to focus on here. Okay. But anyway, this law here is called the Lanham Act, uh, and it like I said, prohibits uh, false commercial uh, commercial speech. Okay. But in order for this to be a violation of the law, the speech has to be factual in nature. Hmm. Uh, the First Amendment protects opinion. Uh, I think that's a well-established legal principle. You could really express an opinion about anything. This is America. Right. Uh, if I wanted to say that the Cyberwire or the Caveat podcast sucks, that's well within my right. It wouldn't <laughs> right. expose me to any legal liability. I could say this McDonald's hamburger is the worst hamburger I've ever had, and McDonald's would just have to take that. They'd just have to take that, yeah. yeah. Uh, even if it costs them money, given your vast influence over potential McDonald's customers. Uh, right. They just have to accept that. But okay. when it comes to facts, our government has decided that we have a public policy interest in making sure that there aren't falsehoods in commercial advertising. Mm. So this suit uh, originally came up in a district court located in Northern California. Many of these cases uh, come through the federal district court in Northern California because that's where Silicon Valley uh, uh, is located. Right. And the district court said that this was not actionable under the Lanham Act, under this false advertising clause, uh, because the speech was merely opinion. There wasn't any factual basis. This content, the alleged uh, false speech was unfalsifiable. And it went in front of a three-judge panel on appeal at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And in a 2-1 majority uh, of this three-judge panel, the court says that this is uh, a factual matter. These statements are falsifiable, and therefore the litigation can continue. Hmm. Uh, The judge who wrote the majority uh, opinion in this case basically is saying— we should cede our claim to expertise over to cybersecurity firms. They are very well-versed in cybersecurity and the subject matter. Uh, and if they determine that something is a potential risk, that it's malware, it shouldn't be the court's business to question that as a factual statement. Hmm. Uh, that the court should stay out of that matter. And at least for the purposes of determining whether the litigation is allowed to continue, that satisfies the standard. You're supposed to sort of assume facts and evidence uh, at that initial preliminary stage, uh, assume the facts are uh, favorable to the moving litigant. Okay. uh, And that seems to be what's happening here. Okay. The defense, uh, which was written by, or or the uh, dissent, I'm sorry, which was written by a judge named Patrick Bumate, uh, wrote that the court, in the majority opinion, says a chilling message to cybersecurity companies that civil liability may now attach if a court later disagrees with your classification of a program as malware. Hmm. But we have neither the authority nor the competence to arrogate ourselves regulatory oversight over cybersecurity. This is what's interesting about this case and why it's particularly relevant. If the reasoning of the majority here uh, is to hold, then every time one cybersecurity firm tries to identify a threat from any type of software, any type of network, any type of 
competitor in the field, they could be subjecting themselves to future litigation under the Lanham Act. And that could be a major disincentive for identifying something as malware or as a threat or as a potentially unwanted program. Hmm. So it would have a major chilling effect on cybersecurity firms who are merely trying to inform their customers that such and such uh, application uh, or such and such service contains these malicious threats. Okay. Uh, I think that's certainly a valid policy concern, and it's why I'm much more sympathetic uh, to the dissent here. I also think that um, when you get into the nitty-gritty of the law here, I, I really struggle as to well as to whether these uh, charges that are laid out, that Enigma software is malicious, that it contains threats, and that it contains potentially unwanted programs, I'm really unsure as to whether those three things are actually falsifiable. Hmm. Um, There are instances where something could or could not be labeled malware, depending on how it was defined. Uh, And the same uh, holds true for potentially unwanted programs. I think that's sort of a nebulous definition. Um, That gets into unauthorized access, which oftentimes can have subjective uh, evaluations to it. Hmm. Uh, So for those two reasons, I think this is a, uh, the dissent is certainly more compelling to me here. uh, And I think the majority's decision is just frankly wrong. Um, And if it were allowed to stand, uh, it could have really negative implications on cybersecurity writ large because it would be it would disincentivize companies from identifying threats um, that might end up helping uh, our national cybersecurity posture. So, what do we know about the original lawsuit here? What, what was it that uh, that these two groups had their dander up about with each other? Sure. So what we know about Enigma is that it is a Florida company. Uh, it markets and sells computer security software nationwide. Um, its products, according to the complaint here, detect and remove malicious software, malware, such as viruses, spyware, adware, ransomware, and Trojans, enhance users' internet privacy, and offers users the choice to block potentially unwanted programs and or eliminate security threats and risks from problematic software programs. Okay. Malwarebytes uh, is a competitor. It's a Delaware corporation, as are many corporations, although it is headquartered in California. Uh, this company, which was founded in 2008, has a flagship anti-malware product. Product, uh, which is aimed at detecting and removing malware, PUPs, and other potentially threatening programs on users' computers. Okay. Uh, so I think the allegation here is that the Enigma products uh, were not being sold in good faith. In other words, they were presenting more risks uh, to the end user uh, than Enigma was letting on. And I think uh, Malwarebytes was... Uh, putting out these allegations uh, publicly, which right. is why it was a violation of the Lanham Act uh, so, against false advertising. So Malwarebytes was flagging Enigma's software as being a potential, potentially unwanted program, as you mentioned, a pup. A pup, um, yep. And uh, Enigma took issue with that. So how much is all of this clouded by the fact that these two companies are competitors? I think the judges uh, both rightfully dismissed that as a major factor, at least in this portion of the case. Uh Um, Previous litigation on false advertising doesn't really make a distinction when we're talking about competitors versus just other interested parties. Mm -hmm. I think there's kind of an assumption that competitors might use our legal system to go at one another, and we should still decide these cases on the merits, no matter uh, the motivation. Hmm. Certainly a a relevant factor, but I think it didn't have a major impact in the majority opinion here. Okay. 
So you mentioned at the outset, this is a zombie case that has been going on for a long, long time. Where does it go from here? <laughs> yeah, so this is where things get really messy. So all this decision said is that as a matter of law, this lawsuit should be allowed to continue. So a couple of things could happen here. One uh, is that this case could be reheard on banc by the entire Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Okay. Um, this is a, only a slight exaggeration, but the Ninth Circuit has like 100 judges. Uh, so maybe more like 25, if I were to be exact. Okay. <laughs> uh, so it's very uncommon that that large of a panel would rehear the case on banc. Uh, it could be appealed up to the Supreme Court. I don't think this is something that the Supreme Court necessarily would want to touch, especially since we haven't seen this issue raised in other circuits. So for right now, it'll go back to the district court to adjudicate both whether this actually was false advertising under the Lanham Act and the other procedural issues here. One of the procedural issues here is about where they can be sued, whether the venue was proper. Uh, I think because that's going to involve years of discovery and complex litigation that we're probably looking at two to three years before there's any resolution whatsoever on this. I think the takeaway here is that it's a warning to cybersecurity firms uh, that if they don't pay attention to litigation like this, we could see a legal landscape in which uh, companies could be held liable for what they have previously said about whether it's rival rival uh, software companies, rival cybersecurity forms, or whomever, uh, if they falsely label something as malware, hmm. uh, even if they had originally made the charge in good faith. Uh, and I think this could be a dangerous use of the Lanham Act and false claims, uh, and it would have a major detrimental impact on the ability of cybersecurity firms to give honest assessments as to uh, which products are, are safe and unsafe for their users. So to what, to what degree do you think that this is a stretch in terms of using the Lanham Act? I think it's a major stretch. Okay. Um, if you look at the Lanham Act, uh, it has a number of elements. So... In order to succeed under the Lanham Act, Enigma, in this case, has to allege that Malwarebytes made a false statement of fact in a commercial advertisement, that the statement deceived or had the tendency to deceive a substantial segment of the audience, that the deception was material and was likely to influence the purchasing decision, that the false statement entered interstate commerce, and that uh, Enigma is likely to be injured. Several of those factors are satisfied. Enigma would clearly be injured here uh, based on Malwarebytes' allegation. Right. Um, Certainly, the statement and entered interstate commerce. We're not talking about something that's localized to California. Right. The deception here is material. I mean, if Malwarebyte is saying this is fundamentally unsafe, that's certainly material as to whether it would dissuade people from purchasing the product. Yeah. Um, but that first factor is just very difficult to prove. You're, you'd have to prove that Malwarebytes made a false statement of fact in a commercial advertisement. And it's just so hard for me to believe that Uh, an allegation that something presents a threat or that something is malware or that something is uh, a a pup, it's just hard for me to believe that under the original intention of the Lanham Act, those would be considered as falsifiable factual claims. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I just, I I think there's certainly a slippery slope if that's the way the court sees these things. Would, you know, some firm simply identifying Another piece of software as a risk, would that qualify as a false statement of fact in a commercial advertisement? Hmm. Um, right. Even- well, I, so, so I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but with this, what strikes me about this is that there are lots of bits of software that have multiple uses. 
you know, uh, you know, nuclear power can be used for nuclear bombs. You right. know, like like so. Uh, you think about pen testers, penetration testers, the folks who are the the cybersecurity folks who are out there uh, in good faith using tools to get into other people's systems. Well, in the hands of a bad actor, that could be a dangerous piece of software. So, am I in legal peril if I acknowledge that truth? According to the uh, to this decision, yes, I think you would be in peril if that turned out to be a false claim when it ended up being adjudicated. Uh, I see. Irregardless of whether your claim was made in good faith, and I think that's the chilling effect that would bother me here. Mm-hmm. Uh, if people are afraid to give their basic opinions or reasoned judgments onto the potential risks posed by a product, then that's going to hurt all of us because— Companies aren't going to make us aware of the risks that they see as professionals. Can, can, um, I, can you yeah. help me understand a, a basic legal concept here? Because my, as always, my my understanding is fuzzy. So let me just start with the let's just do a basic example here. Okay, I say uh, Ben Yellen is a bank robber and a scoundrel. Fair. Okay. Yep. Now, what's the legal difference between that and me saying, in my opinion, Ben Yellen is a bank robber and a scoundrel? That's a great question. Uh, So here's the definition under the Lanham Act, and we can try and parse this together. Yeah. A plaintiff must allege that the statement was literally false either on its face or by necessary implication, or that the statement was literally true but likely to mislead or confuse customers. Okay. uh, Or consumers, rather. So if you made that statement about me, it would have to be in the context of false advertising to be considered under the Lanham Act. So I would have to be selling some type of product. So come by my legal services because as we all know, in my opinion, lawyer Ben Yellen, you don't want to go- He is a bank robber. Right, you don't want to do bank. business with him. He's a bank robber and a scoundrel. Okay. I think if it was known that that was literally false, then I think you could be, uh, that could be a valid cause of action under right. the Lanham Act. Okay. Uh, but to say something that was more of a matter of opinion, like Ben Yellen is a sleazeball- Uh, where it's something that's not falsifiable. I I think it gets to, I think falsifiable is the key word here. Yeah. You could theoretically disprove that I ever robbed a bank. You can't definitively disprove that I'm a sleazebag. You can try. Right. It's been done. (laughs) uh, But it's not something that's easy to disprove. So I think that's the distinction here. Now, in other areas of the law, that's going to be different. We're talking about things like defamation. Uh, But specifically for the Lanham Act and false advertising, that's the standard. And that's Mm -hmm. really the question that comes in here is, is it a statement that is falsifiable? So in this case, then, is it up to Malwarebytes to say, to make their case that what they were saying under certain circumstances could be perceived as being true? Yes. Uh, so it's Enigma that initiated the lawsuit. So they have the burden when this gets back to the district court yeah. of um, proving uh, with a preponderance of the evidence that they're correct on the law and the facts here. Okay. So technically it's on Enigma to disprove what Malwarebyte said and to show 50% plus a uh, 50% plus one chance uh, that their interpretation is correct. Huh. Um, what I think is particularly confusing about the majority opinion uh, is that the definition—the he, judge in the majority says that the definitions inherent in something like malware, software used to monitor or gain access to another's computer system without authorization for the purpose of or impairing—for uh, the purpose of impairing or disabling the system, the judge says that that definition, quote, lends itself to verification. 
And I just don't know that that's entirely true. I don't know if you could ever verify that, especially the more subjective aspect of it, which is for the purpose of impairing or disabling uh, a system. Right, right. And, and they use the example of adware in here, which I think is fascinating. You know, right. Because adware, uh, on the one hand, someone could say, hey, this is great. I'm getting customized ads and I only see ads for the things I want to shop for. And someone else could say, this adware is clogging up my computer, slowing it down, and making it unusable. Right, which would yeah. be, yeah. And both of those things could be true. Both of those things could be true. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I actually thought the uh, adware example was particularly apt here. Yeah. And was a good way of viewing this. Yeah. yeah. So where are we going? So if I had to predict, I think this is going to go back down to the district court. Uh, the district court is going to have a lengthy proceeding where they go through all the procedural issues here, and then presumably they'll make a decision on the merits. Like I said, all of, all this decision said is that the lawsuit is allowed to continue. Okay. Uh, there is a valid basis of law, assuming all of the facts that the plaintiff alleges are true. As a matter of law, this case is allowed to continue. So I think okay. it goes down to the district court. They will adjudicate this on the merits, this plus the other, you know, millions of issues that have been invoked in this <laughs> zombie case. Right. Um, it'll make it back up to the Ninth Circuit where this interpretation on this particular issue will be binding, but there might be interpreta uh, interpretations they need to make on other relevant issues in the case, including the all the other elements of uh, false, uh, false advertising uh, allegation. Because... Huh. The, this falsifiable statement thing is only one element of the Lanham Act. You have to fulfill all of the elements. So there's mm. going to be litigation uh, at the district court on all of those questions. It'll make it back up to the Ninth Circuit. Um, maybe they'll decide a, another issue or they'll say the district court erred uh, in doing X, Y, Z. We're sending this back to the district court so that they can correct that error. Uh and then maybe, I don't know, 2030, 2040, we might get final resolution <laughs> right, right. Uh, of this case. Fun, fun, fun. Yeah. <laughs> After the literal zombie apocalypse. Yeah. I just, I mean, it just seems to me like, oh, I guess I can't help wondering to what degree this is given life just by the bad blood between the two companies. Yeah, I mean, you know? they really hate each other now. <laughs> right, right. And right. this is just one of this. They've now been battling in various courts for six years with, mm -hmm. you know, no sign that this is ever going to end. Yeah, there must be a lot of animosity uh, in those courtrooms. All right. Well, this will be interesting to uh, to watch it play out. Maybe in season 12 of Caveat, we'll have a resolution here. I know. I, we always say we're going to come back to stories, yeah. and I, I really mean it. If, you know, we've, uh, if you're in your 70s and I'm in my 50s and finally we get a resolution on this case, we will right. be back and we will give it to you. Right. All right. Fair enough. Okay, well, we will have a link to that story in the show notes. Um, my story this week comes from the folks over at Ars Technica. This is written by John Brodkin. Uh, and this is about a federal judge saying, no AI in my courtroom unless a human verifies its accuracy. So uh, this is U.S. District Judge Brantley Starr. Uh, that's a great name. Yeah, right? it sure Brant is, Brantley especially for a judge. Star. Yeah, Judge Brantley Starr. That's good. I mean, do, that's do, like do, a central do. casting yeah. <laughs> kind of name. It's a good name. Uh, he is a Trump nominee in the US, U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas. Uh, and uh, he says that there will be no AI in his um, courtroom. Uh, he said uh, AI platforms in their current states are prone to hallucinations and bias. So 
What prompted this from Judge Starr was the case of a lawyer in New York. I'm uh, still laughing about this case, by the way. I'll let you describe it, (laughs) but I've been laughing about it for a week. So this is a lawyer named Stephen Schwartz who admitted that he had used ChatGPT to help write court filings and that ChatGPT cited six non-existent cases that ChatGPT invented. What gets me about this, we've talked about the idea of hallucinations in ChatGPT, but right. like the level of specificity for this completely false information. They're not just listing case names, but they're giving like full procedural histories and full blue book citations. Like they're creating just an entire universe of false information that seems real because they've dotted all of the I's and crossed the T's. It's so bizarre and it's so funny. Yeah. How could a lawyer do this, man? Like, I mean, uh, uh, you think lawyers have assistance for these sorts of things, right? To, to, to fact check their filings and so on and so forth. Am I correct? I think this lawyer probably has a lot on his plate. Yeah. Um, has a million filings that he has to take care of. Uh, and he thought he could cut corners on this and didn't realize that ChatGPT has these hallucination problems. I see. He apologized. Um, yeah. He says he, quote, greatly regrets having utilized generative artificial intelligence to supplement the legal research performed herein and will never do so in the future without absolute <laughs> verification of its uh, authentic- uh, authenticity. He said that this is the first time this has happened. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although it's such a, it's still a new technology. It's it's certainly plausible. This is the first right. time he tried to use it. So he's awaiting punishment or possible punishment from Judge Kevin Castell from the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. Once he's done laughing, he'll be able to issue <laughs> right. sanctions. But he yeah. gets up off the floor. Exactly. Uh, and uh, gosh, I mean, imagine being Mr. Schwartz's um, client and and you know having this happen. What a what yeah. A, I mean, this is for you, Arrested eye. Development fans out there. This is something that Barry Zuckerkorn would have done. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's just it's just too perfect. Yeah. yeah. Interesting quote here from uh, Judge Starr from Texas who says, AI systems hold no allegiance to any client, the rule of law, or the laws and constitution of the United States. Unbound by any sense of duty, honor, or justice, such programs act according to computer code rather than conviction based on programming rather than principle. Any party believing a platform has the requisite accuracy and reliability for legal briefing may move for leave and explain why. That's a powerful statement there. I think I'm not going to try and get too uh, touchy-feely here, but I think this is beautiful, and I think this is something that other judges should adopt. I think Mm -hmm. he's getting at the distinction between AI and human beings, which is getting increasingly blurred, and this can be a widely used definition. Um, no allegiance to any client, the rule of law, or the laws and constitution of the United States, unbound by any sense of duty, honor, or justice. Those are things that are inherent in human beings, inherent in legal ethics, Mm -hmm. inherent in uh, the ethical and moral duty to to advocate on behalf of your client that's attendant in the practice of law. Uh, And that's something that AI could never or certainly in its current form, just simply could not do. Right. Uh, and so I think this is something that's very important. Uh, I'm glad that this this judge has issued this statement. I'm glad he's put forth this rule in his courtroom. I hope it's widely adopted. I think it could be a very useful model uh, for judges uh, across the country, especially now that we know that ChatGPT in particular has these hallucination problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, it certainly 
clouds the reliability of using AI uh, software to uh, do legal research, which <laughs> I know I'm going to see it among my students. And, <laughs> right, um, you know, right. sometimes I would trust a student who, who cites a case. <laughs> yeah. That will not happen going forward. Yeah. I'm going to make sure that that's a case that actually exists. Even if the citation is perfect, even if the procedural history sounds plausible, right. we're all going to have to double-check our work. Right, and you can't is... rely on ChatGPT to double-check the work, right? Like you as a professor can't say, hey, ChatGPT, is this is real? This real? Yeah. <laughs> ChatGPT will say, sure it is. Although to get super <laughs> meta, like... Maybe ChatGPT will spit out false information, but maybe it can also identify that the information is false. I don't know. Yeah. I don't trust it. So let me ask you this. So there are, there, there are obviously this is a, a case where ChatGPT is well documented for going off the rails. And it hasn't just happened in these legal things. We've seen all sorts of things about making up things that simply aren't the case. Right, with extreme confidence. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, they say it's, uh, uh, what did somebody Definitively, say? Definitively, this is, yeah. It's this BS as a service, right? right? Um, so, however, I think there are also things that it is quite good at. It is quite good at summarizing things. In other words, if I give it a paragraph full of facts that I've checked as a human being and I say, hey, ChatGPT, this needs to be shorter. Can you summarize this? It can do that quite well. In a case like that, where I'm not relying on ChatGPT to uh, do my research, but I'm relying on it to basically be an editor, am I obligated to share that with the judge? I think under this judge's uh, instructions here, you are obligated to share that. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that's a particular burden. I mean, if you can really cut down uh, the information that you have to read to prepare for a lawsuit by crunching, you know, a 50-page document into a 500-word summary. Yeah. That's a useful service. And if you spit in true information, at least there's a decent chance that it's spitting out true information. Right. You're not asking it open-ended questions where it's going to use its imagination. Yeah. So I think in that case, the use here would be permissible. You would just have to get the judge's permission and you could be sanctioned if you use generative AI tools and did not ask uh, for permission under these circumstances. Right. So you, in your opinion, uh, Judge Starr is on the right track here and, and has done the right thing. And this is a model to the other courts should... Uh, should follow. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I think it's uh, something that I'm not just recognizing, but I've seen it quoted uh, in articles from legal es- uh, experts as this is very promising. Uh, I think the case in New York uh, was the warning shot mm-hmm. that somebody's going to try and do this. We caught it this time. Uh, but what would happen if this was a criminal case and somebody was convicted based on precedent from cases that didn't exist? Right. The stakes are, are very high. So I think if we're going to be using this new technology— in a legal system where oftentimes it's a matter of life and death, freedom or lack of freedom, uh, that we sh- should be sure that we are uh, using that that we are verifying the factual claims uh, that that we are presenting. Yeah. All right, boy, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Very um, interesting. <laughs> all right, we will have a link to that in the show notes, of course, and uh, we would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to discuss here on the show, you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com.
Imagine a world where you're always one step ahead of cyber threats, where your defenses are impenetrable because you see what others don't. Welcome to Team Cymru's Threat Intelligence Solutions. With real-time access to the world's largest threat intelligence data ocean, they enable you to turn the tables on attackers. Transform your security from reactive to proactive through accelerated threat hunting and incident response, made possible through automation. Empower your team with visibility and insights to start defending your organization like never before. Team Cymru. Be the hunter, not the hunted. Learn more at team-cumry.com slash cyberwire. That's team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Larry Whiteside Jr. He is the chief information security officer of a company called RegScale. Uh, and we're discussing GDPR on the occasion of its fifth anniversary. Time flies, huh? Here's my conversation with Larry Whiteside Jr. If you think about five years ago, privacy was still this, yeah, you know, because privacy is a thing that consumers have to care about. This isn't about, you know, corporate threat actors, you know, attacking some corporate entities to get no, it's it's really about consumers taking pride and really owning the fact that the data that companies gather about them, they care about and they're concerned about it, and concerned about what happens to it, how it's used, and the potential of a breach of someone getting it that shouldn't have it, right? And if you think about it from an American standpoint, and that's the lens I sort of took with GDPR, is mm-hmm. In America, we don't really care that much about our personal data. We like to think we do. We like to get on social media and say we do. But when you look at the actions of the, the, I'll say, the majority of American citizens, they do not do the things that show and demonstrate that we care about our personal data. So with that, when I thought about GDPR being enacted in the UK as it was, I wasn't sure what that impact was going to have, A, on the US, but on the I'll say the uh, the data and privacy scene as a whole globally. And how has that played out in your estimation as you've watched it take effect and uh, you know over the past five years? Do you think it's been effective? Oh, it's it's absolutely been effective. And you know, one of the things that is always a measure of effectiveness is is this is copycats. How, how when you do something how many others begin to copy it or start to follow suit in a similar fashion. And if you look at GDPR and what happened with PEPITA being established in Canada, CCPA being established in California, and there are many other privacy laws in the works across many different states in the U.S., it was a force multiplier because people started to say, hey, wait, what? We can have this? And state legislation, right, in the U.S. started saying, listen, in order to really take care of my citizens in my particular state, this is something that may have a positive impact to allow a state to hold companies accountable. Right? It's similar to when uh, there were a number of different healthcare regulations that came out around HIPAA back in the day. Well, Massachusetts then decided to take that a little step further. And then Massachusetts sort of started a firestorm where many other states began 
to start doing similar things to hold companies more accountable. I think GDPR is that sort of privacy panacea that is beginning to put the world on notice as it relates to, hey, people are starting to really care about their data and what companies are doing with it and how they're utilizing it, especially because as we've gone through a number of things where it's been identified that there are these large data banks that are being gathered and put together that organizations are utilizing and then selling that information to others, it's just started to make people way more aware of how much data and information about them is out there. It's really an interesting notion, I think, that in some ways GDPR showed the rest of the world what's possible and that this you could do this and and, and it, it was it was able to be implemented. You know, there it, there haven't really been any GDPR train wrecks that I can think of. No, there there haven't. And they've been successful. I mean, when you look at it and you go through the list of organizations that have had very hefty fines, these are not small organizations who don't have big privacy programs, big compliance programs, big security programs. These are large organizations that have spent hundreds of millions of dollars potentially in security and compliance and privacy and are still falling prey to it and hitting, getting hit with fines, right? So whether it's Meta or Alphabet or you name it, you know, they are getting impacted by this and it's actually a driving change. It's interesting to me that, you know, GDPR uh, encompasses the European Union and yet here in the States, um, we haven't been able to really have much effective movement at the federal level. It's been all at the state level. What's your perception on that? Is, is, is that, you know, those, those darn Americans and how we do things? Or <laughs> It is. It's, I mean, it's sort of par for the course. If you, if you look at how legislation happens in the states, um, doing yeah. it at the federal level is turning a, a tinker in a pond, right? And so there is hmm. so much bipartisan things that have to happen, right, to bring people to the table together to work where at the state level you can move a little quicker, right? Because they don't tend to have as many bipartisan issues at the state level. A lot of times there's a lot of singularity across that at the state. So you can move and work towards things and, you know, get things up and over the hill or across the finish line, however you want to say it uh, to completion at the state level for your state based citizen. But at the federal level, there's just a lot more hurdles uh, the finish line is longer, and there's a lot more bipartisan rhetoric and things that we deal with in the states at the federal level than they do as an EU parliament. Do you suppose that we are on a trajectory where we will eventually see federal privacy legislation? I think we will. I, I think if you look at the number of executive orders that have come out over just the last, well, let's say the last two presidencies around cyber specifically, we now know that the federal government is taking this very, very seriously, right? Um, there are a number of organizations uh, at the federal level that have their eye on this, that are looking at the, the impact and are drive, trying to drive change uh, internally. But to get to the point of actually having some sort of federal policy around privacy, it's still uh, it's going to take some time. I do anticipate that we would probably see an executive order prior to seeing some sort of federal regulation. Um, but I do know that privacy is a hot topic at the federal level. Yeah. 
As a CISO yourself, how does GDPR affect how you do your job on, on a daily basis? Yeah, so for me as a CISO, right, it's all about the data that we collect and what do we do with it, right? It's, and it's also how we protect it, right? Because it's interesting. GDPR, when you think about GDPR and the controls and things it's asking of you, the way organizations protect their data really hasn't changed a whole lot. We're still trying to protect it. We're still putting a lot of controls around it. But what it does is it forces you to have more control, right? Now, when I say control, that means you as an organization who collects data on individuals, previously, prior to GDPR being a thing, privacy, prior to privacy being a thing, you didn't worry about the granularity of how you could control access and remove data sets from your database, right? It was this big set of data. You, you know, you utilize tools to do analytics on it and to, to clean different things of how your business could be better. But you looked at the data as this big data lake. GDPR forced organizations to focus on enabling granular level controlling of data sets so that they could properly remove, right, strike out, get rid of, delete, whatever needed to happen at a far more granular level than anyone had ever really probably thought of prior to that. And that's what it forces us to do today. So as CISOs, we've got to ask our technology organizations, hey, as with this data that we're getting in, do we have the ability to do these things, right? Do we have the ability to get this granular and to make uh, those types of low-level structural changes to the data to, you know, remove, delete, restructure, or whatever that may be based on the individual use case. And that's the thing that, as a CISO, that I stay cognizant of as we do more data gathering, right, based on our products that we have and based on the customers that we have. As we're doing more of that data gathering, it's ensuring that those underlying controls are always there regardless of how big the data gets. You know, GDPR is uh, evolving. They 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 continue to uh, add new things. You know, there's uh, bills that are making their way through uh, the European Union, um, and and everyone. Uh, I think people's imagination has been captured lately by artificial intelligence. And I'm curious, from your point of view, how do you have your eye on that? How how this focus on that technology has the potential to to change things, it perhaps even be an inflection point. It does, and and the, the AI battle, I'll call it, is really around this generative AI and its use cases and how it's used. And what are the rights that the consumer who utilizes it has versus the rights of the creator of the generative AI platform has? And where is that line drawn, right? Because if you look at the current generative AI uh, solutions that exist out there that are largely being used, they pretty much tell you what you put in here now belongs to us and we can use it however we see fit. And mm. from a consumer standpoint, depending on what that data is, eh, right? Is that, does that conflict with things from other regulations? But if you as a consumer agree to it, uh, you really don't have a like to stand on as it relates to some other regulations of saying, oh no, I want my data back. But you agreed to that that EULA, 
when you utilize right, it. Right. So there's a, right. there's the all a very, powerful EULA, right? Right. So that, that <laughs> nobody reads, right? You know, so right. <laughs> um, it, it's going to be interesting as we move forward, right? The, the, the EU, again, because they move a lot faster than we do in, um, in the U.S., they are looking at an AI act, right? Um, that will define some things on good use of AI, all of it to bad use of AI and, and what that looks like. And to try and give both their citizens some understanding, but also we give companies an understanding of, you know, as, as a uh, governmental entity, here are our expectations of how you use AI. Because nobody wants to ban AI. Everybody realizes there's value in AI being utilized. But they also mm-hmm. realize that they want to put some boundaries around it of what is a good use of AI so that companies don't, you know, overstep the rail, so to speak, so that they don't go outside the bounds of the line in utilizing AI where it begins to ne- negatively impact citizens in some way. You know, Larry, here we are marking five years of GDPR. And I'm curious, as, as you look toward the horizon and try to imagine five years from now, do you, do you have any... Uh, hopes for where we might find ourselves then? Yeah, you know, honestly, I am hoping, and and for me, I think GDPR was sort of a panacea event for it. Um, I'm hoping to see some form of global regulation around uh, privacy and uh, cyber. Right, I'm, I'm hoping to see something that is universally accepted across the globe on how we can both hold organizations accountable, but also the bounds with which organizations can then utilize global resources to go after threat actors as well, right? It's, there's this, one of the big challenges that every organization has and, and CISOs have is when something happens, the component of going back and trying to figure out not just who did it, but then trying to bring them to be held to accountability because there's so many what we'll call dark holes across the globe that have not put anything in place to enable outside countries to sort of deal with any threat actors in their environments, you know, that happen to uh, live inside their borders, so to speak. And so I'm, I'm thinking that in five years that we should begin to see some dialogue, especially with the success of GDPR, around how we come together to create a more global policy framework around those types of things, right? Um, GDPR, I, 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 because I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, of these little piecemeal components, right? If you look at GDPR and you look at PEPIDA and you look at CCPA, you look at the, they're very similar, but they have nuances, right? Well, the more nuances that you have, the more difficult it is for organizations to do to meet all the nuances, and we've we've got these global mappings and all these different things, but it's still work. And so, uh, I'm hoping that as we transition, right, with cyber now, you know, uh, being a little over 30 years old as a as a you know an industry per se, I think it's time for us to start having some aspect of global regulation that begins to catch up with the times and enable us to be a better industry overall. What do you think? Five years of GDPR. Yeah, I mean, it's really remarkable that it's been five years. Uh, I think 
if I were to take my overall impression, it has been a success. Yeah. Um, there have been shortcomings, uh, but I think what we've seen from cases from the European Court of Justice is that they are taking privacy seriously, um, that there are enfor- uh, enforcement mechanisms that, however flawed, have teeth. Uh, and it's something that, frankly, I wish we could replicate here in the United States. That was going to be my next question was when GDPR went into effect... Did you think that five years out, the U.S. would still have no federal privacy legislation? I sort of thought that just based on uh, the inertia uh, that generally exists with our legislative body here in the United States. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's still notable and surprising. And I think... Um, just to reiterate, it's it's hard for companies to comply with a patchwork of uh, different federal laws plus 50 separate state statutes. It would be much easier for everybody involved if there was a single federal standard. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, our thanks to Larry Whiteside Jr. for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can write us an email at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. This show is edited by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. 